Hey, Tim, it's such an honor to have you on the show. Nice to be here. Thank you. I would like to ask you a set of rapid fire set of questions. Okay. Who was the most famous person you met? Uh, probably Ronald Reagan. Nice. And when was that? It was when I was a television news reporter at WRAL-TV, and I had the opportunity to do a brief three-minute interview with him, along with a bunch of other reporters. But that was uh, probably the most famous person I've met. And when, but which year was this? I think it was 85 or 86. Oh, nice. Very cool. And this was in D.C.? This was in D.C., yes. Very cool. And what would you change if you had the opportunity to change any rule in the government process? What would you change? Change in the lobbying process? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, any government process or lobbying process. Well, I, I've been doing this for a long time. Um, we'll talk some more about it. But, but 35 years is a lobbyist. And I think that some of the changes that were made in the lobbying laws in 2007 were well-intentioned, but I think they have caused a, a significant rift between people in the legislative building being able to talk to each other. And just to give you a little bit of background of what happened in 2007, um, the then Speaker of the House, uh, was found guilty of taking a bribe and he was sent to prison. We had a new Speaker of the House and a new legislature. They decided to make some significant changes to the lobbying laws so that lobbyists not only could not go out to dinner and pay for a legislator's dinner, but they couldn't buy him a cup of coffee. Uh, any kind of exchange of of money or favor is basically illegal now under North Carolina law. And that one thing has changed the lobbying process dramatically. And it's also made it much more difficult for members of the legislature to have a civilized conversation together after the day's business is done. Because typically pre 2007, you would have groups of legislators, both Democrat and Republican, dining together. That doesn't happen anymore. And so a lot of the good dialogue and the good relations between legislators and lobbyists has sort of gone by the wayside since then. And so how would you tweak that law? I would make some small modifications, but in, in reality, that's probably not going to happen. Um, because I think legislators at this point probably would be nervous about making changes and about how it might be reported in the press. If um, there was anything you could change in the world, what would you change? Uh, people being able to talk to each other. I, I, I think that unfortunately we've, we've gone to a place where people are very polarized on each side. And there needs to be an opportunity to have good dialogue. And that's missing right now. What is the best advice you've ever gotten? From my father. And my father gave me a multitude of good advice over the years. But he said to follow my passion. 
And that's what I've always tried to do since I was a young boy and going through college and in the workplace. I've, I've tried to follow my passion. What, why would you say the youth need to be involved in government relations? Would you mind asking that question again? Why is it important for the youth to be in government relations? Well, I think experience is important. Um, and having some historic knowledge is important. And I, it makes me happy to see so many 20 and 30 somethings involved in lobbying today. I think that's great. Um, and, and I would encourage young people to do that. The, the problem is, is, is that nobody goes to college to become a lobbyist. They usually end up lobbying from some other place. And I'm a pretty good example about that. I, I graduated in college with a degree in journalism. I worked as a television news reporter for 13 years, and then I worked for a legislative staffer. And, and so then I made the transition into lobbying and, and I had a pretty good um, foundation by which to work in because I'd, I'd worked as a reporter covering government. I'd worked as a legislative staffer for the Speaker of the House. So it, it was not a, a, a job that I took right out of college. Very, very few people do that. What is your favorite destination spot? What is your favorite destination spot? Oh, that's easy. Um, Europe. And I haven't been there since the beginning of the pandemic. And um, now my wife and I are taking care of her 92-year-old mother in our house. And so our travel has been severely restricted <laughs> over the last three years between the pandemic and um, having a new guest in the house. But... Uh, Places like Italy and Spain are just uh, have been the most fabulous experience in my life to be able to uh, adventure through cities like Madrid and Sevilla and Barcelona. Wow. Yeah, I think we should probably have an offline conversation on that. What is the hardest part about your job? Um, Understanding that not everybody sees the issue the way that you do. And when that happens, you have to be patient enough to accept that, be courteous, and move on to the next place. Because not everybody's going to agree with you. So it's hard at first to think that everybody should agree with you but that's not realistic. We don't live in that world. What is the best compliment you have ever received? Um, that I explained an issue well and fairly. And that's, that is absolutely fundamental to being a good lobbyist. You, you have to be able to articulate the issue and do it in a short amount of time and most thoughtful legislators will ask you, okay, I understand what your position is. Who's against this? And being honest and um, forthright about what the arguments are on the other side and who's making those arguments, 
I think is um, really paramount to being an effective and a professional lobbyist. If you had the time capsule and you could go back to any time in the past, which time would you would like to travel to? Oh, I'd like to go back to the early 1970s when I was a junior and senior in high school. It was the greatest time in my, of my life. Why is that? It was. I, you know, I, I, played, I played high school basketball at, at a very high level um, and um, made all Southern California high school basketball team as a senior. And it was, it was a wonderful time. It was a little bit unrealistic. I thought at the time I was going to grow up to be a, a major college or, or professional basketball player, but uh, the experience that I had then, I'd, I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world. And if I could just wind the clock back, probably go back there, at least nice. for a short period of time. Very cool. And the last question I had for you is, how would you define happiness? Uh, happiness is accepting who you are where you are, and the experiences that have brought you there. And I'm incredibly blessed. I have three children. I have four grandchildren. I have a beautiful wife who uh, takes care of me and puts up with me. Um, and I'm happier now than I ever have been in my life. So I'm very happy in the present. Very cool. With that, let's go into your past. Tell us, like, you know, where did you grow up and how was your childhood like? I grew up in Southern California, um, um, the son of a, a World War II veteran and my mother. Um, we, uh, we had a really nice childhood. I went, grew up and um, ended up attending the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, received my degree in journalism. I worked there at, at the university as the sports editor of the college paper. I was certain that my career path was going to be, be become a, a sports writer for a major, uh, major metropolitan daily. When I graduated from college, uh, one of my college professors helped me get a job at a very small television station in Montana. And that was the beginning of a 13 year career in television news reporting, worked as a reporter and anchor in four different markets, Montana, Albuquerque, New Mexico, I moved to North Carolina in 1981. I have lived here ever since. I worked in Greensboro at Channel 2 in Greensboro. And then the last five and a half years, I worked at WRAL-TV in Raleigh. I got out of television news at the end of 1988 uh, because I wanted to. I felt like I'd had wonderful experiences with no regrets, but I had a young family at the time. And being a television news reporter and an on-call 24-7 is not really compatible with a good family life. I had an opportunity and I took it to work as the chief of staff to the Speaker of the House of Representatives in North Carolina. I did that for almost two years. And then I had another great opportunity. Um, I went to work for the American Institute of Architects North Carolina chapter, served as their Chief executive for 10 years, moved to the North Carolina Realtors, same position, again, worked there happily for about 10 years. And for the last 13 years, I've been in the same kind of position at the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Uh, best job I've ever had. Happy as can be. And 
when you, during your childhood was there any reason why you picked journalism as a kid um, yeah my, my parents were very very dedicated to education my w- mother was a um high school english teacher and my dad was an insurance man they they both had good college educations they made that the the highest uh pinnacle that we could achieve uh we spent most nights watching um walter cronkite and chet huntley on the evening news and discussing what had happened um we read a lot of newspapers that was just part of how we grew up so journalism was really a natural thing for me and um i i i love the written word and i started writing for newspapers as early as age 13 i was a i was a stringer for for the uh, county newspaper and providing uh, providing news reports because they didn't have somebody there full time so i've actually been a, a news reporter since age 13 it's kind of cool nice and after you joined college in journalism um did you decide that you were going to be a reporter right after soon after or did you take a break there no no i did not take a break um i was in college a long time ago that's that's in the early 70s and the, the biggest story of the day was watergate and and the fact that two uh, um two washington post reporters bob woodward and carl bernstein broke the story and eventually eventually changed the presidency and so as a young person in college in those days i mean these were very heroic figures these 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 investigative reporters who were able to shape the world so you know i graduated with a journalism degree and i wanted to work either for a a, a newspaper or in this case a television station and it it was a it was a wonderful time and uh, had 13 great years as a as a television news reporter but i've never looked backward i i, I don't want to go back to that place i've never wanted to i've just um, enjoyed the time that i had and do you remember any specific stories or any witty stories anything during your time as a journalist yeah i think um, i think probably the most memorable thing for me was that um at wral i had an opportunity to to um report from four different national political conventions uh both the democrat and republican in 1984 and 1988 and um those those were remarkable experiences but i i also had an experience at one of those conventions that convinced me that maybe my time as a reporter was over. Um this was 1988 August in New Orleans, Louisiana, and it was day 2 of the Republican National Convention. And we had a a live television unit set up on the parking deck outside the um, Louisiana Superdome and I was about to do a a 12 noon live shot. And you know, this is August in New Orleans. It's hot. and we had a thunderstorm and so the thunderstorm's over and the steam is just rising off of the concrete deck it it is it's like being in a 120 degree steam bath <laughs> and the only thought that's going through my mind as i'm getting ready to do a television live shot is 
when is this convention going to be over so I can go home? <laughs> and that, that's what I refer to as my light bulb moment. Because re, re, if you're a reporter, a political reporter, and you're reporting from a national political convention, that's like the Super Bowl. That, that's supposed to be as good as it gets. And, and here I am reporting live from a national political convention. And all I'm thinking about is I want out of here. And I decided at that moment that maybe there was something else I needed to be doing for a living. You know, that was real important to me as I started my career. But 13 years into the career, it became less important. And I had other priorities, raising kids, um, being able to come home at a decent hour at night. And so, you know, opportunity led uh, to working for the Speaker of the House. And that led to 35 years of being a lobbyist and an association executive. You know, life changes. You have to adapt. So what was the trigger point to get into government relations? So after you worked for the speaker, what? Well, well, I was working for the speaker and a couple of my closest friends managed associations in North Carolina, and they were the lead lobbyist for that group. And I noticed that they were very happy with what they were doing, that they liked what they were doing, uh, that they went home at night. And, and they were able to maintain a, a, a normal home life. And I thought, that should be pretty good. And so I, I was working with a speaker late in the second year, and the opening came at the American Institute of Architects for a, a new executive director. I applied, and by the grace of God, I got the job. And, you know, the rest of my life has been pretty doggone good. Nice. And you also worked at the Association of Realtors, and now you're working at the Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Correct. Please talk to us a little bit about your current association, what the mission is, and, mm -hmm. and what your role is. Yes. Um, our, our association, the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association, was formed in 1936. Uh, wholesalers are a very important, integral part of what's known as the three-tier system, which was an outgrowth of post-prohibition. Uh, the United States wanted to make sure that we didn't go back to some of the illegal practices in alcohol trafficking that took place prior to prohibition and ultimately led to prohibition. So wholesalers were created to receive product from suppliers, and then deliver it to retailers and the retailers sell it to the customers. There's a separation of powers, if you will, in the alcohol business. I, I work for family owned companies that are in the business of delivering beer and wine products to grocery stores, convenience stores, restaurants and bars across the state. Um, it, it's a wonderful job, but not for the reasons that you might think. I, it, it, I don't, this is not a party job. What this is, is I'm, I'm the facilitator of information and manage the lobbying process for a bunch of people who are really good corporate citizens and have been extremely good to me. And I try to uh, do what I can to effectively manage the legislative and regulatory process that impacts their, their businesses. 
was there any favorite issue which you can mention you were um are you, are you talking about within the beer and wine wholesalers association yes yeah um they're, they're all different no two days are the same um there, there have been a lot of changes made to alcohol laws over the last um 13 years that I've been involved in it. And uh, we've, we've helped facilitate a lot of those changes that we, we consider to be better for the, the process and better for the consumer. But I, I think there's one favorite thing that uh, I, I am proud of is that uh, we, had, we had a family that had been in the, in the business since uh, before prohibition and they wanted to sell their business. And they wanted to be able to sell their business to the people that they wanted to sell their business to. Well, the, the North Carolina law allowed a brewing company to basically veto that decision and choose who they thought the business should be sold to. It was called match and redirect. The brewery had a chance to match the highest offer and then reassign the business to whomever they wanted. Um, within an eight day period, we were able to change the law so that this company headquartered in Goldsboro, North Carolina was able to sell it to three other North Carolina companies that they wanted to sell the business to. Uh, I thought it was good for North Carolina business. I thought it was good for this family in particular. And I'm, I'm really proud to have uh, played a strong role in that process. Very nice. And um, do you see the alcohol laws being different um, in North Carolina compared to other states, um, yeah, whether it's positive or negative? Well, they are different. And all 50 states are different. And, and that's, that's what came out of prohibition. The 18th Amendment to the United States Constitution created prohibition, which lasted for about a 15-year period from 1918 to 1933. The 21st Amendment to the U.S. Constitution ended prohibition, and it gave states the right to decide their own destiny and how they wanted to handle alcohol. So you really have a patchwork quilt across the United States. Uh, New York is not like Georgia. Um, Illinois is not like Utah, and we're not like Massachusetts. And so all of these states have different laws. Um, we are one of 17 states, which are known as control states. And control in this case means that the government, state and or local, plays a role in the disposition of liquor. So that's a rubbing point with some legislators and also with some people in the public who have lived in other states. And they say, okay, I, I, I live, used to live in New York and we, we could just buy liquor at the grocery store. Well, you can't do that in North Carolina. The, the ABC stores are owned and operated by local governments across the state. And that's something that the voters of North Carolina in individual voter referendums voted on in some cases, many, many years ago. And so we're, we're what's known as a local option state. And all of the uh, local communities, the counties and cities in this state 
made the decision of how they wanted to deal with liquor. Now, my members don't handle liquor products. We handle beer and wine, and we consider those to be uh, products of uh, lower alcohol and of moderation. Uh, the average beer is 4.5% alcohol. Uh, a bottle of wine is somewhere between 13 and 15% alcohol. Um, and by contrast, you know, a bottle of wild turkey is close to 40% alcohol. So we, we look at these as being different products. Um, beer and wine are sold in grocery stores and convenience stores. Liquor is not. Um, looking back at the illustrious career you've had, if, if you had to advise um, on what are the things to do and not do in lobbying, what would those be? First of all, know your issue. Um, be confident about what you're talking about. And the only way you can be confident about what you're talking about is to study the issue, understand the issue, and do proper preparation. And you've got to be able to make your arguments quickly and succinctly. And then, as I mentioned earlier, you're going to run into legislators who don't agree with you. And that's fine. You thank them for their time and you move on. You don't argue with them. That doesn't do any good. I mean, over my years, I've gotten into a couple of arguments with people and I've always regretted it afterwards. So that just doesn't do any good. Uh, you have to be mature enough to understand that there's 170 members of the General Assembly. Not all of them are going to agree with you and your point of view. And your job is to make sure that you have a majority of both chambers that do agree with you. With that, we move into the last segment. You get the platform. Um, you can talk anything which you would feel like, either your future or your association's mission um, or anything goes, any advice you would like to share. Anything, is, anything goes here. Well, I'm a little bit different in some cases that I am both a lobbyist and I also hire lobbyists. And um, because of the uh, involvement and the generosity of my members, I'm provided a budget so that I can hire lobbyists that will represent the association and help us. So I, I'm, I am... Um, really humbled and um, gifted to be able to have the ability to hire good people. Um, Fetzer's strategic partners, Tom Fetzer and Susan Vick work with us. So do uh, Vista uh, Strategies, and that's Tom Apodaca and his team. He's a former state senator, rules chairman. Um, we have Brubaker and Associates, House Speaker Harold Bruker, uh, Brubaker, who was, who was Speaker of the House from 1984, 1994 to 1998. Uh, wonderful man, Sarah Bales and her sister worked with him. And then uh, last but not least, Lori Ann Harris, whose, uh, whose history in the, in the legislature goes back to the early 1990s when she was uh, chief policy advisor to, to then House Speaker Dan Blue. So I, I feel like we've got four of the premier lobbyists in the state 
working for the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. And I'm humbled to work with four professional groups like that. Um, I, I consider them to be the, the four premier lobbying groups in the state and um, happy to have them on our team. Tim, I just wanted to say the extensive knowledge uh, you have uh, and your passion towards the association. I'm pretty sure you made your father proud. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you.